Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley. Oh, what a goal! For, For Chemist, Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Dender and shortly, and of course, our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Now, a week ago, we were collectively biting our nails at the prospect of an ignominious, if not anonymous, exit World Cup qualification. A loss to an unrated Middle Eastern side and one line in the news reports of the following day's press before the post-mortem began within the hardcore football community was the worst case scenario that was looming. Seven days later, and the Socceroos 2-1 win over the UAE in Doha leaves the national side tantalisingly close to a fifth consecutive appearance at the world sports biggest show. And the bandwagon jumpers have arrived. Now, not everybody's happy with Will Swanton's article in today's Australian, but there was one line where I think he did put it perfectly. Speaking of the broader Australian sporting community, those who don't follow football every single week. He says, well, I reckon part of our molecular makeup is to be clueless about the World Cup qualification system until you wake up one morning and the good folks at Fox Sports tell you Socceroos are one win away from the World Cup after a late scorcher decides a playoff nail biter. I reckon he couldn't have put it any better because the reality of it is those of us who are passionate about football, we watch it in its most infinitesimal detail and we want those other sports fans to come in. And whether they jump on the bandwagon late, it really doesn't matter. Meanwhile, our opponent is a country with football in their DNA and one we're very familiar with after they dismantled the Socceroos in the last renewal of the World Cup in Russia. This time Peru have scrapped their way into the Intercontinental Playoff after a fifth-place finish in the South American qualifiers. And that game will, of course, be the feature piece of this week's show. And we're delighted to welcome back South American football expert from The Guardian, Marcela Mora y Araujo, to dissect it all. Socceroos, Matilda Central after that, where we'll look into the game in a little more detail. We'll talk about the latest with the women's side, the national side, who this week were announced with the prestigious honour of opening the new Sydney Football Stadium in September. And, of course, we'll discuss the run our under-23s men's side are making at the Asian Cup, which managed to prick the mainstream sporting bubble, courtesy of Alu Kual and his brilliant Scorpion goal, which he described as, well, just what I do. And then, like all football lovers, while we have one eye on domestic news, we're always on the lookout for the big international stories, and there was none bigger than Wales breaking their 64-year drought to qualify for the big dance, heartbreakingly at the expense of the rest of the world's second team, Ukraine. We'll be joined by Daffod Pritchard from BBC Wales to get a sense of just what a sense of achievement this is and look ahead to an excellent group they'll be up against, which of course includes England. And of course, we will wrap it up with everything else in stoppage time with Derek. Edge, you're over there in Doha. We watched the game. We spotted you cheering in the stands. Just how exciting was it, mate? Oh, hello, Rob. Hello, Willem. Greetings to everybody who's listening to Box to Box, wherever you are around Australia and all over the world. Um, it was a fantastic game, um, really great experience in the grandstand, and um, I, I haven't had as much fun at the football for many years. It was very, very good, extremely tense, um, extremely uh, nervous at different times during the game, but some great elation when uh, Box to Box's very own Jackson Irvine slipped one past the, the UAE goalkeeper in the, in, uh, early in the second half, and then obviously, who could forget? Who could forget... Uh, uh, Aiden Rustic's uh, missile, which took a 
a wicket deflection and got us over the line. Um, it was a fantastic experience. And when you're over here um, and when you experience um, uh, just the, the matches live, you do have a great appreciation of, of the Socceroos uh, competing in a global environment uh, in, in the sport that is the most competitive in the world. And for all those people who don't know uh, the Socceroos' names, um, but uh, getting on the bad wagon, you are most welcome. Join the journey. Immerse yourself in the best sporting contest that exists on earth, the FIFA World Cup. And our boys, Rob, uh, a 50-50 chance in a two-horse race to get through to our fifth World Cup. It's something to celebrate. Australian football continues to improve. And well done to Graham Arnold. Well done to all the coaches and the players. You've got us this far. Let's just let's just get one more big job done uh, on Monday night in Doha, Tuesday morning, and we will all celebrate a magnificent achievement for our sport. And it's great that we're still in the hunt, we're still alive, and uh, and people like you and I and our listeners get to enjoy uh, the Socceroos journey. It's been absolutely sensational. We're all excited over here. Um, the, the team is optimistic. Um, they understood that they owed the United Arab Emirates one from that semi-final Asian Cup defeat and they owe Peru one too from uh, the last match we played against Peru at the, uh, at the Russia World Cup. So let's hope that provides a bit of a steely backbone in the team. It's going to be a difficult job, but um, uh, bring it on, bring it on. Monday night in Doha, Tuesday morning in Australia. Um, what would, what would uh, Bob Hawke say if he was still alive and Prime Minister? He said, anybody who's not watching next Tuesday morning, you're not Australian. Michael, I want you to describe to the listeners the sound of the bomb off Aidan Rustich's boot from inside the stadium. I am head over heels in love with this bloke and that goal. I've watched it probably 100 times since it went in on Wednesday morning. He could not have hit it any better. How was it from inside the ground? Actually, before we get there, let's take a listen to Robbie Thompson's call of it, which I thought was fantastic. Oh, it wasn't a man. You could hear it smack. We were um, we were sitting uh, directly uh, horizontal to it, so it went like a bullet. And uh, we, we when when you watched it live, we, we didn't didn't appreciate that it took a deflection off the off the uh, the UAE defender, but it looked like it just went in the back of the net before the goalkeeper even moved. Can I just talk about um, Aiden Rustic for a little bit because um, seeing him up close, um, he was super motivated. He was super engaged. He was emotionally engaged in the game. Um, uh, Milos Steganak was continually from the sidelines encouraging him. At times he was asking him to calm down. In times he was asking him to, to uh, be more aggressive. But Aidan Rustic, I think, uh, I don't know what you think about this, Willem uh, or Rob, but I actually think that he is starting to arrive and uh, carry the expectation of that important, you know, number eight, number 10 position in the team. Uh, I thought he... Uh, I thought at times um, uh, he's been close to delivering for us, but I thought uh, um, in the match against the UAE, he, he couldn't be faulted. And he was furious when he was substituted. I mean, he was furious. That's how much emotion he was carrying and dragged into the game. He wanted to be the player that stood up. And, and well done, Aiden. I, I, a player who wants to take on responsibility. And this young fellow, I think we're going to see him as a, integral part of the Socceroos for many years to come. Yeah, he's absolutely become the man. And in the absence of Tom Rogic, maybe and if, even if Tom comes back uh, going forward to the World Cup, if we make it or the Asian Cup, I think he's very quickly become our most important midfielder, Michael. And it's it's 
it seems obvious to say because he scored the goal, but he was the difference in the uh, in the final twenty minutes, particularly. And he definitely lifted and went to another level. So no, he has become the man, and uh, that is a goal that will live on for a long, long time. We'll come back to the Socceroos and Australian football throughout the show, but let's have a word for Wales, who have broken their sixty-four year drought in qualifying for just their second World Cup. They went past Ukraine one 0 in Cardiff. Gareth Bale's free kick helped on, unfortunately, by Ukraine's Andrei Yarmolenko. It does bring an end, Rob, to the inspired run of. Ukraine, who were shown the utmost respect by their opponents and the crowd and the referees on the night. A couple of quotes, firstly from Ukrainian coach Alexander Petrikov. He said he really wants the people of Ukraine to remember the team's efforts. And from Alexander Zinchenko, every one of us gave everything today. We left everything on the pitch. In general, I don't think we deserve to lose, but that's football. It happens. Uh, Wales, they've been there just the once in 1958. Uh, they went undefeated in the group stages uh, before losing to Brazil 1-0 in the quarterfinals. Let's take a listen to another magnificent call from our good friend, Martin Tyler. Dragon has roared! Wales are going to the World Cup after 64 years! The long wait is finally over. Qatar, here they come! In- incredible, absolutely incredible. A day I never thought I'd see. Yeah, look, you, you're right about it, Willem. It's well said. Um, you know, the um, the emotional side of us um, with the world view of the, the tragedy and the heartbreak uh, that uh, that's going on in Ukraine at the moment, uh, desperately wanted Ukraine to, to get to Qatar so that the people of that uh, war-ravaged country have, have more joy. But uh, they've been on an incredible journey. And uh, look, fortunately, uh, the, the team bounced back quickly. I know it's cold comfort that uh, they uh, they beat uh, the Republic of Ireland in in the, the, their first round Nations League match. Uh, so so clearly, this is a side that wasn't just up for the, the, the series of contests. They're going to be up and about for a while. So uh, they've got more to, to look forward to. But, uh, but kudos to Wales. Really looking forward forward to talking to Dufford Pritchard from BBC Wales uh, later on in the show. Uh, uh, he's a guy that's just uh, all over Welsh football and wrote some incredible pieces to wrap that um, that result up. So, yeah, sad for Ukraine, but, um, but congratulations, Wales. Another team they're going to break a long drought in Qatar along with Wales are Canada, but they've got a few issues uh, regarding how much their payers are actually going to pocket for their appearance. Uh, the Maple Leaves, or La Rouge as they're called, went on strike this week. They refused to train in Vancouver or play their friendly against Panama, having been offered just 30% of the World Cup prize money by their federation. The players also dirty that they'd received just two tickets each for their family. Jonathan Herdman, the coach who's led them for the last couple of years, is leading them on this strike as well. It's said uh, they're demanding 75 to 100% of the prize money, so a fair bit of time before they go can uh, meet in the middle there. Uh, and they, of course, Michael, have a, uh, a bit of a, uh, an example to look to because the US Soccer Federation, as we know, have just agreed to a deal with their men's and women's side to pay them 80% of World Cup prize money. So Canada at the moment, just 30%. So uh, Canada Soccer has some work to do to make peace here because this is uh, the most important year in their football history. Yeah, well, a lot of, a lot of federations have been having to deal with the players uh, who, who want to share a prize money because that's... The prize money uh, for FIFA uh, World Cups continues to increase. Um, so that seems to be the standard negotiating tactic by player groups around the world. And yeah, 30% is not a commercially, um, uh, it's, well, it's not, it's, it's not a global benchmark 30%. It's sort of closer to 50%. So um, that's what happens in Australia, um, you know, in terms of the share of the prize money for the player group in, 
and pools. So, yeah, I mean, the Canadian players, they've done an exceptional job to qualify Canada. Um, you know, they're not a regular attendee at FIFA World Cups. We, we've talked about their qualification process throughout. They've been really super. They probably uh, earned and deserved it. And I think the administrators, as much as they probably have the, the, uh, the good of the game in mind in terms of trying to retain most of the uh, prize money for game development strategies, whether that's, you know, elite teams or grassroots, but, you know, the, the, the players are the ones who deliver uh, the opportunity to be at a World Cup, they should obviously, at least in my opinion, probably share in half of it because there are a lot of uh, unmeasurable benefits of having your nation make the World Cup in terms of inspiration for the sport and people taking up the sport, people looking to get engaged in the sport. There are, there are many more benefits than just the prize money that's achieved from uh, the participating uh, fees that member associations get by by playing at World Cup. So I'm, I'm probably on the side of the players on this one, but they want to get it resolved pretty quickly. Um, the Canadian public and football community, they want to see their team prepare appropriately and, and give it their shot. I think Canada's got a good chance of getting out of their group. Uh, and, you know, the boys want they, they want to get this resolved pretty quickly and, and move on. So let's hope, um, you know, a consensus on meeting in the middle gets there. Okay, great work there, Willem. Um, Edge, you sit tight. You've got a few things to attend to on your busy travels in Doha, so why don't you go off and do a, a few of those uh, because Willem and I are going to have a chat to Marcella Mora Iarao. She's in London. She's uh, one of the, the leading football experts of South American football, and she's about to head over to Doha. But what we're going to talk to her is about Peru. Uh, what uh, can we expect? What are they expecting uh, against Australia? in this match. Uh, stick around because Marcella is coming up next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box and we are less than a week away from that final match against Peru in Doha which will seal the fate of either Australia or Peru and that uh, spot in the World Cup in Qatar later this year. To talk about it, our favourite South American football expert from The Guardian, Marcela Mora Iaraujo. How are you, Marcela? Hi, how are you? Good morning. All the better for talking to you. Yes, London. Our favourite Argentinian in London, about to jet off to Doha, we uh, we know. Um, so you'll be there watching the game by the time it, it starts. So, you know, Marcel, obviously we're all very concerned that um, Australia uh, doubles down after beating the UAE, but we all know that uh, Peru are a very different proposition and uh, uh, and, and the culture that... Um, Ricardo Gareca has has instilled in that national side uh, since he, he took over in 2015, obviously qualifying uh, them for the last World Cup in Russia, where we know all too well uh, how well they went, um, underperformed until they played Australia and then tore us off the park. Uh, so, Marcella, from your personal expectation and what you know of the expectations of the Peruvian national side, um, what do you think uh, is is their feeling for the opposition? Are they uh, are they on high alert? Um, uh, do they feel this is a game that they just should win, um, or are they concerned that Australia's got to trick up their sleeve and and could uh, uh, turn this into a nightmare? So the the Peruvians I've been speaking to and in touch with are um, very uh, prepared for anything. 
And, uh, you know, they, they do say things like, we should win, but you never know uh, in football. But they, they do have this kind of long-standing uh, sort of unrequited love with the idea of the World Cup. And they're very, um, you know, they're, they're, they're very kind of, uh, they, they'd love to, to go to the World Cup. And as you said, uh, you know, after 32 years or something, without making it there, they got to Russia and their two uh, main claims to kind of satisfaction on the World Cup stage, having lost two games before they met Australia, is one that they lost to France, who then won the World Cup, so they lost to the champions. And the other is that they beat Australia in the first round of the World Cup. That's their kind of maximum glory of the nation in its World Cup history or at least fairly recent history. Um, I think, you know, they're, they're completely uh, prepared for, for, for things to go either way. However, I do get a sense that they are actually quite ready to put up a good fight. Um, they had a friendly against New Zealand, which was kind of speculating lined up the main players um, and they have uh, a real desire you know I don't, we can discuss forever how much desire plays a part in um, in these matters but I think they really want it and I think Doretta really wants it and, and uh, even though they didn't have a particularly good qualifying campaign um, and, you know, as I say, like the, the kind of maximum pinnacle of their international history was, was beating you guys in, in the group stage, even though they had no points until then um, and, and went home. But, but then Gareca uh, had his contract renewed with something like 90% of the population wanting him to stay on the job. And his assistant, Nobby Solano, who uh, people who follow English football, or followed, or have followed as long as, as I have, will remember from Newcastle. Uh, you know, really, really nice, level-headed guy, uh, super concerned with the kind of human aspects of everything that has to do with the players. And, you know, Gareca has said in the past, it's a country with no infrastructure, no uh, youth development, no money, you know, nobody takes the sport seriously, yet the players, really love it the people really love it so it's one of those um quite romantic you know if they did if they did make it to the world cup i think it would ju just qualify just beating you guys on on monday would be like a final one it would just be a celebration in peru I think. marcelo if i could just ask you a little bit more about Gareca. he's obviously from argentina played 20 times for the national team in his playing days and played for both um boca and river plate as you mentioned took peru to the 2018 world cup and the copper final in 2019 as you mentioned i mean as soon as he gives it away they're going to build the statue but what of his reputation outside of peru how's he held uh in argentina and in south american football in general well, I think he's a, he's he's very much liked. Um, uh, you know, he's a, a funny, charming, good speaker, a, a thinker of football. Um, people call him the tiger, but I, I I think of him less as a tiger type person uh, and more, you know, one of those thinkers. Loves to chat, uh, discusses the game in a kind of intellectual way. 
And I think uh, because he's done well with Peru, and I mean, you know, as you, as you mentioned, that it's not just the World Cup that an international side aspires to. He's, he's really had a very good run. Uh, people now think of him as the Peruvian manager, but 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 um, Argentina has managers all over the place. You know, at, at any World Cup, you're likely to see a few Argentinians kind of come across each other and. Uh, I, I, you know, very much in the immediacy of now, he's 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 much liked. He's he's thought of as someone who's done a good job with limited resources, if you like, with scarce resources. But he's, uh, yeah, uh, um, he's he's one of the of the good good ones. <laughs> <laughs> this is Box to Box, and we're speaking to the Guardians, Marcela Mora Iharaho, about Peru ahead of their intercontinental playoff with the Socceroos next Tuesday morning. Marcela, Peru have been to five World Cups, as we have uh, in Australia, but Perus have come over a much longer period, having, of course, been there at the very first one in 1930. Uh, we know it's extremely tough to rise above the pack in, in South America. So is there a sense in Peru around this group that, uh, this could be a second World Cup and done, or has, has Gareca put in uh, some foundations for the next cycle and beyond? Well, uh, I think they're relying quite a lot on, on the older players at the moment. And um, as I, I mentioned, Gareca has spoken quite a lot about the lack of youth development and infrastructure to kind of bring new players through so I don't get a sense that there's a great new generation a golden generation uh, coming through you know they are, they're, they're relying on guys who are terrific but you know are bordering 30 uh, and I mean uh, Carlos Zambrano who's the central defender that he plays in Boca Juniors which happens to be the team I support in Argentina so I've probably seen him play more than most, but he is one of those uh, players who, you know, might he could score, although he's a defender, and, and just turn a game around. And he's absolutely solid as a, you know, a brick wall. But he also tends to lose his temper and be quite South American in his antics. So it's equally likely he could get sent off or score the winner. And that, you know, he recently said, I'm coming to the end of my career. And he just awoke a barrage of, you know, shocked, um, kind of weepy responses in Peruvian media. And even and Bobby Solano Gareca saying, no, no, we will talk to you from not retiring. But the truth is, the guy is, you know, going to be 33, if not during the World Cup immediately after. And um, I don't think he was saying, I'm going to hang my boots right now. But I think he was stating a fact in elite athletic, you know, the elite athlete past 30 has got to start thinking about the next stage of life. And, um, you know, e equally, uh, Christian Cueva, who I, I think scored one of the goals against you in 2018, I know suddenly had a, a mind fog about that, um, is, you know, also, I mean, the, the, the thing to look out for him in, on Monday, particularly, is that he he does play in, in Saudi Arabia, so he will be the most acclimatized, or, or one of, you know, the few who play in the Arabic dunes, as the Peruvians like to say, stay in the Arabic dunes. They suit you so well, dear Cueva. Um, that they, you know, over thirty. I don't know. I think if they make it to this World Cup, they will then have 
um, that kind of boost to look at future generations and develop uh, kids. You know, that I think a history of football is based upon generation after generation nurturing what we call child and adolescent development and having not not just academies or, or uh, you know, good teachers at the moment, but, but setups, it, quite good competitions, structure, things that, you know, formal um, divisions, paths that the kids know how to go through. And I think Uruguay, Brazil and Argentina have had that historically. And, and the other countries in, in Latin America, not so much. And I think Peru would truly like thrive if they, if they could uh, have a, a serious look at um, infrastructure. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm being clear, but you know, um, I, there's a, a football writer I love in Peru, who's a Peruvian fan, knows that its football is the most disorganized, informal, and invertebrate in the whole continent. But we also know that we, uh, in spite of having the domestic tournament that's the most wild and corrupt on the planet, we really want the World Cup. And I think that's a lovely kind of synopsis of this invertebrate, corrupt, informal, disorganized system that really wants it. So for them to remain a World Cup presence, I think they, they need to really, really dramatically transform their kind of the grassroots, the, the, you know, where all elite sports is born. Yeah, well, to, to pick up on what you said, I was reading an article that Tim Vickery wrote during the week where he uh, he contrasts uh, the the achievement of being one game away from the World Cup with that very mess that you talk about, that uh, all of Peru's clubs have been eliminated from the Copa Libertadores um, for the ninth consecutive year. Um, and this time they didn't even manage one victory in the entire tournament they've got no high profile players in Europe um, but yet Gareca still manages to add the, the 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 whole to become better than the sum of its parts if that's the right way to say it yes yes I mean <clears throat> you know the, the, the Peruvians themselves say things like we have not produced world class players in the last 30 years or you know we, we have not had a a, a dramatic impact on anything, but in, in South American competitions, they have a presence, and it's not you know if, if you if you get drawn against Peru, you don't immediately write them off. Uh, you know, I don't think well, perhaps no country should be written off because it's quite quite a competitive uh, kind of part of the world, maybe Venezuela, but um, I do think there is this kind of uh, I mean. The the last fixtures of, of the qualifiers, you know, they were mired in, the, what or not even the last one, just the whole qualifiers. One of their biggest defeats was against Brazil, which uh, I remember people at the time saying this is like a return to the 70s. It was, you know, blood and violence and uh, dodgy refereeing and all, all the things that we hope to leave behind. Uh, you know, football becomes slightly sanitized and and kind of uh, 
moneyed and glamorous and 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 peru is is always a little bit of a kind of you know a, there's, a, there's something slightly vintage about that again i think it was you know sambrano who 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 got sent off and so you always have that there was this kind of idea certainly in europe about um south american antics and you, you know, with a sort of rough and tumble and, and slightly dirty approach. And I, I think, uh, whereas Uruguay are a kind of professional version of that, they, they they win on the back of it. Peru just have the, you know, the kind of the look without without the result. But I I'm looking forward to this game because I do think they have some incredible talent there. And as I say, I think Kareka and Solana have been working as well as they can given the limitations uh, not just of the money on the organization and so on but you know that they've, they've actually been playing in, in their leagues until just last week so they went to Spain for this friendly with New Zealand straight from club uh, fixtures it, the ones who play at home and um, I, I don't know there's something kind of epic and remarkable you, you know that they Really, they're at, they're fifth in the region, just and they they could be in the World Cup already. So I think this knockout against Australia, which is a again a classic of sorts in terms of you know South American and Australian teams fighting for this uh, place after the the main qualifying rounds have been settled. I, I think that they're confident. And without knowing too much about how Australia's reaching this stage, I think that that confidence is justified because uh, you know they they have the they have the raw talent and they have the the foundations of a good uh, working atmosphere. I think um, you know they they they. They could do it. It wouldn't. It wouldn't be like mind-boggling. And well, if they do, we'll see what happens then. I, I wouldn't rate their chances past the group stage particularly highly at this point. But um, it, it would be lovely to see them reach the World Cup again because then it's not thirty years. It's it's like they're back. And so by the next one, we might have some young blood. And some, uh, you know, a, a little bit of support, of, of kind of containment from the, from the actual federative, the governance bodies in Peru, which currently are not being supportive and, and containing of the talent. The more you speak, the more we, we worry about this. Um, as uh, an article I read from an Australian writer uh, today, he said, uh, in Australia, we hope our blokes will do all right and get through. But uh, in South America, read Peru in this instance, they don't so much hope their teams win that they depend on it. Uh, Marcella, before we let you go, we wouldn't be doing the right thing by you, uh, the proud Argentinian that you are, to not ask about uh, your hopes and expectations for a Messi-led triumph at this World Cup. It'd be the crowning achievement of the great player. He's coming in in imperious form, five goals against Estonia in a, a friendly and uh, still, uh, you know, uh, holding his spot uh, 
uh, in the PSG side um, and not on reputation. So, uh, so what are your expectations that Argentina might break the twenty-year South American drought, and uh, and we'll see Lionel Messi lift that trophy and uh, and finally uh, achieve that um, that long-awaited spot alongside Maradona as uh, as one of the true. Uh, greats and icons of Argentinian sport. <laughs> so I don't think you need to win a World Cup to uh, achieve that spot of icon. Um, but he is—he is having a terrific moment. I—I uh, I saw him play at Wembley last week, where in a very little publicised uh, rebirth of an old cup between the South American champions and the European champions. Argentina played Italy. And um, it was just one of the most beautiful and historic nights I've seen at Wembley. I don't know where so many Argentinians emerged from in London suddenly, but the stadium was full um, and it was mostly Argentinian supporters just chanting the whole way through. It was almost like they were egging the goals on before they happened, you know. Suddenly the stadium would roar, just kind of, ooh, and then... (laughs) It would be a goal. It was a three, three goals, uh, none by Messi, but he assisted two of them beautifully, and he just had the best night. And you could see, you could just see him smiling. At one point, he he, he just ran alone. It was incredible. Passed all these Italians, and then just hit the post by a millimeter. It didn't go in, and whereas. A younger Messi might have broken down, sobbed, retired, had a tantrum, and a less uh, mature kind of fandom might have said, oh, he wouldn't have done that if it was Barcelona or whatever. This was just, he just fell on his knees and just smiled, like almost laughing, and the stadium kind of roared again with him. And I think this emotional synergy that's existing right now, which, you know, again, we need like a few hours to discuss why this might be it's just at peak so is he I mean the the World Cup is so weird this year because it's at the end of the year and they're, and they're all at club level they'll be in competition until right up you know I think it's maybe again about two weeks if, if that just before so we still need to see what's going to happen to everybody during the beginning of the season at club level and how they reach the end of the year like the matches today tell us very little indeed about how they're all going to perform um, come come November. But if he remains like this, I think we will see a spectacular performance. Whether or not he lifts the cup, I don't think matters at this stage. He's done enough. Sounds like that you're sort of just tempering expectations to avoid the pain because uh, the, the 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 thought of the very thought of him lifting that trophy uh, is is so pure in, in terms of uh, you know the joy of sport as as a, as a, an Argentinian as it would be for any person who follows a national side. You know, it's it's, it's almost well. The thing is, there's the such world. a loving at the moment between fans and media in Argentina. Everybody's like, whoa! So like. You know, I, I was saying similar to what I've just said to you on Argentinian radio after the game last week, and then the, one of the presenters texted me while we were uh, speaking, saying, "You don't believe, you, you don't believe we're going to make it, do you?" And I said, "No, no, I'm just tampering expectations in the hope of, you know, ameliorating the pain. I mean, if you're prepared, but 
But I do believe, I, I, I mean, I want to say this again, because you mentioned this in your original question, like, will he lift the cup in order to match Maradona? And I really believe he doesn't need to. You know, he really is the best player we've had in I don't know how long and possibly better than Maradona. And I, I, I don't think he needs to lift a cup. And I think, and I, this is complete speculation on my part, he doesn't think he needs to lift a cup. And that's why he's playing lighter, because that expectation that he actually needed to win for Argentina was like a burden on him. And now he's enjoying the game and he's got a team that's enjoying it with him. There isn't, you know, a kind of psychological demented pressure on everybody that they need to make Messi happy or else and all this. They they just seem to have a really lovely, harmonious kind of connection on the pitch. And um and and so I I don't think he needs the cup. It's not just that I'm lowering expectations because you know, the pain would be unbearable if you don't get it. I really don't think we need it. I think the point of sport of, is is to enjoy it. It's to enjoy it as a spectator, to enjoy it as an audience, to enjoy it as a player. It's entirely about our free time and the playful aspect of being human. And so if we just get rid a little bit of this kind of, chain round our necks that if we don't win we're rubbish just a point made about Peru and Australia you know this is a great game that we're going to play it's got everybody excited does it really like you know does life depend on which one wins and gets to go to the world obviously the World Cup is a coveted event to participate and while it's going on whoever's not there doesn't exist but it, it's just great it's great to get that close and to have the chance you know to to travel, to learn. People like Gareca Solano, uh, you know, the, the Scaloni, the manager of Argentina, who is a disciple of a, a kind of generation of managers who also believe very much in um, education as part of youth development in football. And that's, I think, crucial. You know, Maturano, who is now coaching the youth divisions in Argentina said the other day that I want all the kids to read and learn English and he was mocked to eternity by the sports press for saying that but I think he's so right you know we that these kids these Peruvian players you're going to see Monday they they come from backgrounds that are just shocking in in the 21st century you know we shouldn't have anybody any child on earth living in those conditions and then they are suddenly you know commanding massive figures between the Mexicans and the you know Saudis and seeing what you know who pays more and doing deals for millions and at the time we might laugh but we also totally encourage them you know when Christian Cueva got a call from Maradona himself saying will you come play for me and he said, oh, it was, you know, like getting a call from God, but he actually chose Turkey because the money was more and so on. And I think uh, that these stories of each one of them are, are like ridiculous, you know, postmodern fairy tales. The kids come from nothing and suddenly they're bartering in the most remote places of the world. And then if they don't win, we somehow feel that they have let down a whole nation, a whole 
history of a nation, that themselves, we pillory them, instead of from the go, just helping them out of that, uh, you know, helping them all out of that hopeless despair and, and just anchoring more on the on the positive things sport can do, which isn't just, you know, winning the World Cup isn't the only thing to, to aspire to. And in fact, it's a kind of, you know, it, it should almost be like a little afterthought, like a, oh, and they won the World Cup. But so somebody like Messi has done so much for the game, for kids all over the world, for everybody watching him. He's absolutely, you know, an artist in every sense of the word. Just watching him play live, you know, last week, the few English people who got a ticket and managed and, uh, and knew about the event, they'd be talking about it forever. And it was, you know, as I say, a game in which he didn't even score. So, yeah, sorry. Don't even think about it. I'm just sitting back enjoying the uh, the world view <laughs> and the context of what you're saying. And, and in my office, as we're recording, uh, I, I have uh, framed the Rudyard Kipling poem, if and uh, and that famous line, if you can meet with triumph and disaster, and, and treat those, those two imposters two... just the same, yeah, exactly, yeah. So, so the, I, I think what you're saying, yeah, it, it encapsulates all of those things, doesn't it? That that sport, we should enjoy it for its purity, for what it can do, and that uh, that we shouldn't be caught up in the illusion that a player like um, uh, Messi needs this uh, as much as we say it. Um, Marcella, you're about to head off to Doha on Monday. Uh, you get to watch this uh, match as a as a little entree ahead of the World Cup. With uh, well, all these expectations, regardless. So I know, what, and we take the point of what you're saying, but still, it's going to be a wonderful tournament in Argentina. Uh, writing it up to there next uh, uh thanks for sharing your thoughts on peru uh, uh for all of those concerned australians who are even more worried about uh, about the their chances <coughs> our chances after you say but but good luck with argentina and and hopefully if we can uh, uh indulge ourselves and, and and talk to you a little closer to the tournament again uh, uh it'll be great i'm sure it'll be fun when hearing you mention kipling you reminded me of a when I routed on about football being um, about art and expression and, and culture, uh, very early on in the Guardian podcast, I used to read football poems. And um, and one of the most beautiful ones I ever found was by a Peruvian poet, a woman, actually, who uh, is, is one of the most um, revered poets in the, in the Spanish language. Uh, and she, she wrote... Uh, Play with the earth as if it were a ball. Dance with her. Burst her. Exploit. Explode her. You know, the, these guys are going to run out in this extraordinary heat in the stadium that's constructed as if it was, you know, some kind of space shuttle. I mean, I have no, no idea what to expect from Doha, but, and that they, and there, and there we will see 22 guys, you know, flying and, uh, Mm. Playing with the with the ball as if as playing with the earth as if it was the ball. I nearly said playing with the ball as mm. if it was the earth, mm. which may also be true. Anyway, so lovely poetry and football for forever.
on and on. Good on you, Marcella. Well, you go back to enjoy, well, it's breakfast time over there. I think a camel regular and a lavazza rosa for you. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and um, enjoy your trip. Safe travelling. Um, enjoy Doha. Michael is over there right now. He tells us that the air conditioning is working beautifully and it's 32 degrees, but even chilly inside the stadium. So pack your uh, so a warm jacket just in case you get cold when you go in there. And, uh, and, and we'll talk to you again soon. Excellent. Marcella Mora i Araho, read her copy in The Guardian. She's a, a poet of football journalism and a wonderful person to boot. Uh, it's just wonderful that we have the chance to talk to her on our podcast, Box to Box. Okay, stick around. Uh, after the break, we're going to talk more about that game with Michael. He's going to come back uh, uh, from his uh, Doha joints. We're going to talk about the Matildas and, uh, of course, the under-23s and their Asian uh, uh, Cup exploits. Uh, they are doing very well right now. So stick around. That's next on Box to Box. Box to Box. For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings, and Storage King, the kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. This is Box to Box. We really hope you enjoyed. Uh... That chat we had with Marcelo, I know we extended it uh, a little longer than we normally would and probably ranged over some areas of social issues that uh, uh, that generally don't get discussed in football shows. But Marcelo's a passionate person. You'd expect that of a South American uh, football person. And uh, she really does uh, uh, express her views in, in such a, a wonderful way that uh, we uh, we really did enjoy having a yarn to her. And we'll talk to her again soon before the World Cup. We are going to talk more about that game. In fact, we've got a lovely little package show from Edge in a moment to play you but before we go there uh, buy any links product at Chemist Warehouse right now and support mental fitness through Gotcha for Life Gotcha for Life is a wonderful foundation it's a charity which was founded by Gus Warland and it's aimed at supporting men's mental health it's all about starting meaningful conversations by developing strong social and emotional connections and that's something that is so important and we all need to do that we'll talk to Duffet Pritchard later on the show about the tragic loss of Gary Speed uh, uh, who uh, was a, such a seminal person in, in the growth of Welsh football who uh, suffered from mental health issues in his own life so from a football context let's uh, let's all get around each other and talk to each other gotcha for life a wonderful foundation chemist warehouse are getting right behind gotcha for life now by donating five percent on selected products this month five percent of all barocca performance sales five percent of all link sales and five percent of all l'oreal paris men's expert sales so get into chemist warehouse stock up and save and money goes to gotcha for life there's a lot more products helping to fund the charity so check out chemist warehouse the catalogue for sales and all the details find out more at your local chemist warehouse store where the great savings are every single day well i mean i know uh, you know a young bloke of your capacity it's it's great to see these conversations happening more and more so um uh, and becoming more and more common and easy to have no, it certainly is, Rob. No, it's uh, it's normal amongst my uh, my mates and my peers of our age to chat, and that's because it's been drilled into us for a good few years now. So, uh, no, times are, are slowly but surely changing. So, yep, certainly uh, certainly very important. Let's have a look at Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. Uh, we're in World Cup mode, of course, currently, but expressions of interest are open for the 2023 Asian Cup. Not quite sure where it's going to be held. Could be the Middle East, could be uh, Japan, South Korea. That'd be one hell of a tournament to get to. So make sure you jump on the Green and Gold Army website and put some plans in place to get over there. McGree, Rustich, Jean Rowe, Atkinson, Rolls, Qual. These are the names that are going to lead us uh, to that tournament and beyond. We'll probably have a new manager as well. So could be a good freshen up, Rob, and a good time to get on board the Green and Gold Army. Head to ggatravel.com.au.
Uh, we know that the Green and Gold Army are in full flight at the minute, Rob. Let's uh, have a listen to Edge, who has a, a special guest with him. Joining me now is Luke Credentino, who's joined the Green and Gold Army uh, Intercontinental Playoff Tour here in Qatar. Uh, welcome, Luke, to Box to Box. G'day. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're welcome, and it's good to have you too on the Green and Gold Army Tour. Now, we're sitting in a Persian-Iranian restaurant uh, down in the Souk Wakif of uh, the old city of, of Doha in Qatar, and we're about 24 hours after Australia beat United Arab Emirates 2-1 in what was an epic encounter, but just tell us your reflections on the game and how much fun you had. Yeah, it was an amazing night. Uh, obviously, the result went our way, which was the best bit of the night, but the whole atmosphere of the day and the game was just amazing. You know, going to a brand new stadium and a, a crowd with Emiratis and neutral fans from Qatar that really embraced the Aussies and joined in all our chants. It was a really beautiful night. And did you get a sense the players appreciated uh, the sort of support that was echoing from our corner of the stadium? Because we were getting a fair few smiles and thumbs up from the players as uh, they were warming up. And, and uh, yeah, I, I actually had the impression that I thought the players did appreciate what we did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as you said, the players were warming up right in front of where we were sitting and there's quite a few winks and thumbs up and waves from the boys and we're chanting out their names. Um, so I think they appreciated it. And uh, at the end of the game, we spoke to Graham Arnold and he uh, spoke about us coming all the way from Australia and said how much it means to him and all the boys, you know, that were that committed to come all this way and follow them. So I'm sure they appreciated it. Now, in the lead-up to the game, I asked uh, you who was your favourite current Socceroo, and you said Jamie McLaren, because I know you're a Melbourne City fan. But I thought Jamie McLaren was very impactful when he came onto the field for Matt Leckie late in the match. Do you think Jamie has an opportunity to pinch a starting lineup in the game against Peru? Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, we've got a lot of talented strikers, but um, with the situation with Adam Taggart missing the game, um, I think he's definitely got a good chance to start in the game, and he proved that in, in the game last night. He came on, and as you said, he made a difference. Um, I think his play style can be great for the Socceroos. He's done it in the A-League. He's won the Golden Boot that many times. He can, he can do it on the world stage now, for sure. He certainly can. Have you got a message for your tour mate that you've met on the tour, Adrian Brett, a.k.a... Uh, or what is he, Aussie Kit Nerd? Or, yeah, Oz Kit Nerd. Sorry there, Adrian. Yeah, just yelling it out in the background. But have you got a message uh, that we want to share with the listening audience of Box to Box right around the world? Oh, well, I'd want to say to Adrian, yeah, can I get a signature? Because uh, <laughs> as the world knows, he's a bit of a celebrity now, whether it's on the news back home in Australia or on social media, he's uh, become a bit of a star. So uh, a signature would be great. Yes, no, he has become a bit of a star. We just He's just left left us in his wake, no doubt about that. But uh, thanks for joining us on Box to the Box, Luke. I hope the rest of the tour goes as well as uh, the start of the tour. And we're so excited that Australia is going to be playing Peru on Monday night or 4 a.m. Tuesday morning back in Australia for a spot in the 2022 FIFA World Cup Qatar. That is something pretty remarkable. Absolutely, yeah. Just fingers crossed they can get along the line and, yeah, go Socceroos. Cheers, Luke. Back to you, Rob. You can tell my voice is a little bit hoarse. It's uh, strained a little bit after last night's match against you. Know, it was a lot of fun. Uh, the best time I've ever had at the football for quite a few years. So I'm really looking forward to the challenge ahead against Peru. And who knows? It's a two-horse race. And we've got Michael Edgley back on the line. Michael, how are you? I'm good, Willem. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. It's only as we record this, uh, you guys are recording Thursday uh, evening. It's... Uh, about one o'clock in the afternoon here, and it's only a lazy forty-nine degrees. Uh, juice. Uh, 
Plenty to chat to you about, Michael, in the world of Australian football. There are, of course, another. There is, of course, another Australian side at the minute up to their next in tournament mode. That's the under twenty threes under Trevor Morgan, and they've booked themselves a quarterfinal meeting against Turkmenistan in the Asian Cup. That's going to be played Saturday evening Australia time, so a reasonable viewing hour. Wins over Q8 and Jordan in the first and third matches did the job, but the highlight undeniably came in the second match: Alu Quals' uh, scorpion kick in the one-all draw with Iraq. Joining Australia and Turkmenistan in the final eight uh, Uzbekistan of course the hosts Iraq South Korea Vietnam and two other sides still to be decided from Group D so Michael it's all been happy days uh, so far for Trevor Morgan and the boys apart from a red card for Cassini Yangi which was a little bit harsh to get a two-game ban off the back of that but uh, certainly encouraging signs of course keeping in mind that this doubles as qualification for the Olympics. Yeah, it does. And um, uh, in fact, we've had two red cards in the second and third game. So they, they have to navigate uh, those players down out of the squad for at least the next game. Um, look, they're doing very, very well. Um, I've actually been able to catch uh, most of all of their games. And uh, I think uh, they, have, they have the potential to do something special. This is a massive game against Turkmenistan, a, a country we should probably get over the top of. And then, and then obviously we're, we're in a a minimum of a third and fourth playoff for a spot at the Olympics. So it's a pretty crucial tournament. Um, Trevor Francis and, and uh, the team he's got over there are doing a great job. And obviously, Alou Kual has absolutely stolen the, 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 the headlines and the, and the focus with that scorpion kick. But uh, there's a lot of other really terrific performers in that uh, under-23 team, which a lot of A-League followers would be aware of because there's many A-League uh, players in that in that. Um, in that group. So let's hope um, they can get over the next game and, uh, and have a real shot of uh, ensuring that Australia goes to its uh, second uh, Olympic games in a row. Uh, and of course that'll be in France uh, and what a way to, uh, to have a holiday in France following the Olly Roos and potentially the Matildas. How good would that be? Uh, Tristan Hammond was the player sent off in the third group game there for violent conduct. Uh, uh, again, a bit of a tight call, but swing of the arm, you, uh, you put yourself in that position. Rob, the Matildas uh, are coming back home. They're going to play Olympic champions Canada in two friendlies this September, the second of which is going to be a bit of an important moment in Sydney's football history, the reopening of the Sydney Football Stadium. First match yet to be finalised is going to be on September 3, uh, and that Sydney match will be played three days later. But what do you make of the two games that are going to be played before that of a different code? We're going to have the Roosters against the Rabbitohs in the Rugby League and the Wallabies and Springboks in the Union. Interesting statements from Sydney FC's new CEO, Adam Santo, this week with Simon Hill on SEN. Uh, we know that a big part of that redeveloped SFS was going to be the Curtains, Uh the facade panelling and stadium roof fabric, as it's called on Infrastructure New South Wales website. So the idea there was that it was going to be a 43,000-seat stadium, but for smaller events, maybe a 20,000-seat A-League match, for example, you'd have these curtains up and that would uh, keep the the intimacy and the atmosphere in. Uh, They are nowhere to be seen. Michael, Adam Santos said that the technology and the infrastructure actually doesn't exist anywhere. Infrastructure New South Wales website still has that promise up there, but that looks like a bit of a broken one at this point. It is a broken one because primarily the budget for the stadium was cut significantly um, bef- uh, before the New South Wales election uh, around uh, the amount of money that was going into all of the stadium redevelopment. So they just didn't have the budget to pursue uh, the design uh, construction element of that. That's been known for a little while. Um, it is what it is. Uh, however, I still think that the new Sydney Football Stadium or ANZ Stadium is going to be a cracker. Uh, For those people that have had a little glimpse of it, and I have been lucky enough to do that, uh, it is going to be 
fantastic. And if you're a Sydney FC fan or you're thinking about being a Sydney FC fan or you want to be a Sydney FC fan, get your reserve seat organised because it's going to be a wonderful place to view A-League football. I'm looking forward to it. I think I want to be there for the first A-League match. Uh, I think it's going to be absolutely brilliant. And um, Sydney FC fans who've been the journeyman of... Uh, A-League fans more than some of the other clubs uh, during the pandemic phase with having their home uh, renovated uh, are in for a real treat. Uh, It's going to be a fantastic uh, stadium to be uh, an A-League fan and uh, and uh, if I was living in Sydney, Rob, I would be getting a ticket and getting down there and enjoying the wonderful stadium and all that it has to offer. Yeah, 100%. There's been a lot of controversy about that stadium, but it's as you say, it's going to be a genuinely world-class stadium once it's finished. So, so um, yeah, if you're... Uh, well, I don't think people need us to pump it up too much. If they're in Sydney, they'll uh, they'll be buying their tickets. So I think we're going to see some, some really big crowds at that stadium. Uh, when you build it, as uh, uh, Kevin Costner famously said in Field of Dreams, they will come. Sydney FC fans will be there. Michael, you'll be there. But Milos Ninkovic may not be there. He posted a goodbye video on Instagram this week to Sydney fans. He was pretty dirty. He said, it's not the way I wanted to finish, but I didn't have any other choice. I'm now looking at other options. He thanked the fans. He thanked Arnie, but no mention of Steve Corica. The club pretty quickly went into damage uh, control. They put out a statement saying that negotiations were ongoing and Milos agreed to take the video down. So whether or not he'll be there uh, is, well, obviously uncertain, but when you've got a you know a king, a jewel that he's been to that club through their most successful period, uh, if he does leave, you need to manage it in a, in a better way than that. So hopefully that can play out in a more savoury manner. Jake Brimmer, should have mentioned this last week, he won the Johnny Warren medal, which was, I guess, a little bit of a surprise, but he was exceptional, particularly at the start and the end of the season, which sort of re- uh, reflected victory season as a whole. And a big season for him, Michael, that he won the Johnny Warren, he won the victory medal, which is the club best and fairest, if you like, and the Mark Viduka medal for best on ground in the FFA Cup final. He's victory's third Warren medalist after Carlos Hernandez and Marco Rojas. He's the youngest winner since Rojas nine years ago, and he's the first Aussie since Nathan Burns in 2014-15. A quick uh, quick reflection on Brimmer's season. It was fantastic, wasn't it? He's becoming one of um, the leading lights of the A-League, and he's up there with good company with the other Melbourne victory uh, winners of that medal. Uh, Marco Rojas and Carlos and his real, uh, real big names and legends of the A-League uh, in the time that they were at the top of their game. So, well done, Jake. Um, let's see what's ahead for him, um, whether that's uh, continue at Melbourne Victory, but um, at an international level. I just wonder if he can continue his push. Uh, you'd probably think he would need to go to Europe to uh, to get a look in at, at the international stage. But, um, yeah, I think he's got uh, still a lot of improvement and uh, I enjoyed watching him play this year. He's got a wicked dead ball, hasn't he? He loves a dead ball free kick and can do some incredible damage with it. And finally, Rob, before we get into our chat with Daffod, a word for Robbie Cruz, who's departed Melbourne Victory after 92 games across two stints. A damn fine career in the green and gold and Germany in between. Uh, we know he's had issues with his body for a long, long time. So if this is to be it, uh, a magnificent uh, career, both with the victory, with the raw before that. Over in Germany, of course, Bayer Leverkusen, he was keeping Son Jung Min out of the Champions League when he was uh, when those two players were there at the same time. 2015 Asian Cup champion uh, and a Socceroos legend. So if that is to be it, uh, well done, Robbie. Michael, we will uh, take a break from you while Derek and I have a chat with David Pritchard um, after this break, and you're going to come back. Uh, we'll uh, talk a little bit more in stoppage time, mate, uh, about just how exciting it is over there and some more stories from Doha. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. 
Yes, of course, this is Box to Box, and while a lot of this show has been focused around Australia's attempts to qualify for a fifth consecutive World Cup, none of us forget that 32-year drought that was eventually broken in 2005 when Australia beat Uruguay on that famous night at Homebush. The equivalent for Wales, of course, was this past week, their drought, 64 years and heartbreakingly, of course, it was the, at the expense of uh, everyone in the world, second team Ukraine. Uh, but uh, for the Welsh football fans, uh, the, uh, the frustration and the pain and the hurt of all those years just washed away. And a man who was right in the middle of it from BBC Wales is Duffy Pritchard, and he joins us on the show. How are you, Duffy? Hi there. Yeah, good. Thanks. Still, uh, still very much on a high from Sunday. Yeah, we've got a real close uh, affection for, for, for Welsh football. Uh, uh, I know I mentioned in our chat that our good mate Dean Hennessy, son of the great Terry Hennessy, uh, has been a part of our podcast uh, since we, we began. So we, we watch Wales closely. And uh, and I guess it's one of those scenarios where you sort of want it to be against a team that, you know, um, in a sporting rivalry sense that you really don't like. So um, it was bittersweet that it had to be against Ukraine, but not that bittersweet enough that the Welsh fans uh, uh, didn't want their, obviously, their team to win. Yeah, that's right. In an ideal world, it wouldn't have been, <clears throat> excuse me, against Ukraine. Um, but it was dealt with quite, you know, classily that the players went over to the U- Ukraine fans at the end before their own celebration started in earnest. There was a kind of feeling of kind of mutual respect between both sets of players, both sets of fans. So it was a a strange kind of situation and for, for us media covering it as well because um you know there were quite a few clenched fists under the desks so i won't lie uh, the, you know the impartiality went out the window on on occasion but then you go into the media room and you speak to the ukraine manager um about the atrocities going on in their homeland and it was all quite sobering um so it was a kind of quite a heady cocktail of emotions on on the day but once that was kind of dealt with and Wales were allowed to celebrate on the pitch, uh, the players with the fans. Um, yeah, it was it was a glorious day. And, you know, 64 years, um, a lot of people never thought they'd see Wales in a World Cup. So it was a, yeah, deeply emotional and, and just such a, a happy day for everyone. Talking about deeply emotional, uh, just in the lead up to the game for our listeners back in Australia, I think a lot of us are familiar with um, the land of my father's, whether it be from uh, the the rugby or, or the football. But can you tell us a little about the pre-match ritual with the other song that's sung and how that, that traditional sort of national song for Wales has really sort of bound the fans and the... Uh, and the players together in that in that Cardiff Stadium. Yeah, so a, a relatively recent development for the national football team is the um, the way that they've embraced the song Uma Ohid. Now that translates as "Still Here." It's a song by uh, the folk singer David Ewan, uh, and it's about the survival of Wales, the nation, and the Welsh language over thousands of years. Uh, and it's a kind of yeah, a, quite a tub thumping, proud protest song and uh, the players have really uh, adopted this themselves in recent years and then before the Austria game in March so that was the playoff semi-final David Iwan was there to sing the the song Amalheed there at the Cardiff City Stadium and he was back again on Sunday this time though as well as singing it before the game um, he was on the pitch afterwards as well singing it with the players so that was uh, an amazing image When you consider this is a, a Welsh language song, and in Wales, as you know, not everyone speaks the language. 
Uh, and the squad is a good reflection of that. I'd say only three or four of the 27-man squad um, speak the language. But to see someone like Gareth Bale himself, not a Welsh speaker, belting out the words to Amar Heed and the crowd all sing with him, that was that was a great image. Mentioned Gareth Bale before, and of course he uh, created the goal. There's a, there's, a, there's a feeling that you can see going around the ground when Gareth stands over a free kick anywhere near the penalty bad box because because he's got a history and of course yeah yes it was a deflection and Bale and Ramsey they do kind of get the spotlight in terms of this team but could you well may talk about Bale because you also talk about some of the unsung heroes as well because this Welsh team is a team isn't it it's not packed with star quality all over the pitch in the traditional sense absolutely and, and even those stars don't play regularly for their clubs at the moment so Gareth Bale uh, in between the March games and Sunday, had played only 20 minutes for Real Madrid. Joe Roden plays for Tottenham, but again, he'd only played 10 minutes in that period. Aaron Ramsey in and out of the Rangers team on loan at Juventus. So a lot of these players come into international camps rusty, but they do find another level when they put that red jersey on. And as well as these kind of notable players, you know, Bale, Roden, um, Ramsey, Joe Allen, a lot of the players are playing in the championship or or even lower. So you've got uh, players such as Joe Morrell, who's featured heavily in the qualifying campaign. He plays for Portsmouth in League One, and yet he finds another level to compete with world-class midfielders such as Luka Modric during his Wales career. So it, it is that kind of quality we've heard people talk about with the rugby team as well. Sometimes you, you think of how poorly the regions perform in Europe, yet they put that Welsh jersey on and they seem to transform themselves into different players. So they've always had this kind of base level of performance, regardless of the level that their players are playing at. And then you just got that sprinkling of stardust over the years from Bale and Ramsey and others. And I think that goal um, against Ukraine just kind of spoke volumes of the influence Bale can exert because he wasn't having a good game. He looked well off the pace. Um, as he said himself beforehand, if I play rubbish, Wales win, I don't care. And just as well, because that was pretty much the situation. But, you know, you just get the impression that he can kind of bend a game to his will. And it's almost like he, he just psyched Ukraine out by by just being there, by lining up the free kick. Perhaps if anyone else was taking it, Yarmolenko might not have put his head on it. But that is the kind of the aura of, of Bale. So, yeah, it is very much a team ethic, but just that, a little bit magic that someone like Bale can provide on top of it. Uh, off the top, David, uh, Rob mentioned a man called Dean Hennessy. He's uh, a guy over here in Australia who's played in the leagues here as well as uh, playing back in the UK. And he is distantly related, believe it or not, to Wayne Hennessy. Um, I, I don't quite know what the bloodline is, but we we're talking about those unsung players before. T- tell us about Wayne Hennessy's performance. It was heroic from Wayne Hennessy. Um, he's been a great servant of Welsh football for years now. He's made over a, a hundred appearances for his country. Um, he's Gareth Bale's best friend in the squad. They've been t- together since they were youth team players. And usually when you, you talk about Wayne Hennessy, fans, pundits, the kind of language they'd use would be, never lets Wales down, Mr. Reliable. But he found another level on Sunday. I think it was nine saves he made. Some of them were absolutely spectacular as well, especially 
uh, one in the final 10 minutes, a flying save um, to deny one of the Ukrainians uh, an equaliser. Um, so there is this feeling that, again, he is a player who doesn't play regularly. He plays for Burnley, um, but he doesn't get a look in there. And again, he found another level. So Wayne Hennessy, yeah, real stalwart of this Wales team. Um, and like Bale, he's been around to see the bad old days of Welsh football because when he was starting out, Wales reached an all-time low of 117th in the world rankings. That was only 11 years ago. Um, so for him, Bale, the more seasoned and experienced guys in this squad, this means even more. And the manager too. Let's talk Let's talk about um, Rob Page because his journey as the manager, really, you know, the interim and and is he still you know is he still the interim? Because um, obviously Ryan Giggs has had to step away from leading the side, but of course under under Page they've continued the momentum that started under under Gary Speed and and then Coleman and it's, it's continued. Um, what's Rob Page like? What, what you know? How's he adapted to this job? And how how do you think he's built on those um, those shoulders of the people that have put in the, the groundwork in Wales? Yeah, he's done a really good job. Um, as you mentioned there, that the work started under Gary Speed. Under Speed, that the the aim really was to change the culture around Welsh football. It wasn't as professional as top flight clubs, um, but whether it was small things like you know uh, adopting sports science and just being more professional in in every aspect of it, Speed helped do that. He helped change the style of play. Chris Coleman then built on that qualifying view of 2016. That was the big breakthrough because they hadn't been to any major tournament uh, for 58 years until that point. And then Ryan Giggs, despite a bit of a a rocky start and and not being that well-liked by a lot of Wales fans from his playing days, he then got them uh, to the last Euros. But it was Rob Page um, who actually ended up taking Wales to the tournament. So he was really thrust into the limelight. Um, He was the assistant coach before then. He'd been Wales under-21s manager before then. And his managerial career was was not exactly stellar because it was Port Vale and Northampton were the only clubs he'd managed. Um, But his ethos was try not to change too much. Get the players on side, get the big personalities on side, the senior guys, Bale and Ramsey, and try to change as little as possible. So with that continuity, he's managed to keep all these guys on side uh, and he, he's been very kind of low key in everything that he's done he's he's tried to deflect praise elsewhere he keeps saying what a great group of players he's got to work with but he should take a lot of praise himself because yeah taking this job has been a massive step up for him uh, and he's taken to it really well they got he got Wales out of the the group at Euro 2020 last year um albeit they they were smashed then in the second round by Denmark but Qualifying for a World Cup is just a massive achievement. The Euros are one thing, and they were brilliant for Wales. Euro 2016 were their greatest days, but a World Cup is another level. And to get Wales there after 64 years is a, is a brilliant achievement from Paige. There's no doubt that we'd like to bring you back on the show closer to the World Cup to, to, to really dissect that group. Of course, it has in England in it amongst uh, others. Um, you mentioned also that, you know, even though it's been 64 years since 
the World Cup, Wales are now turning into a bit of a tournament national team. And not only a tournament national team, but a, a team that actually does well uh, in, in, in the tournaments. The World Cup is a step up in quality. But um, how do you feel about that group? Is England a good thing or a bad thing? And is there genuine optimism that it's not just about going to Qatar for the party, but actually to make a dent on the tournament? Yeah, th- this generation of players, especially the young, the younger players, so that those twenty-five and under in this group who make up a, a big chunk of it, um, they're used to winning now. So qualifying for major tournaments um, feels like par for the course for them. They've qualified for three uh, of the last four tournaments, and they go into these games kind of unburdened by all this talk of history and sixty-four years of hurt. So. They're used to winning. It's culturally ingrained in them to to expect to win, which is very unlike the average Welsh fan. Um, and they'll go into that group in Qatar feeling confident that they'll get out of it because, yeah, England are, are a top team. Um, the United States are a very good one as well as are Iran. I think if you look at it, the average ranking, it's actually the the strongest group at the World Cup, even though on paper you might not. Think of Iran and the States as, as powerhouses. Um, I think on the on the England question, um, I think most Welsh fans would would prefer it if they weren't playing against England. Um, they they faced them at Euro twenty sixteen, and it all felt a bit of a distraction. I think certain elements of the English press like to believe that it's the biggest game for Wales, but Euro twenty sixteen was all about Wales's own journey, and, and this upcoming World Cup will be all about. Wales as well. England will just seem like a bit of an inconvenience, frankly. And um, yeah, if if uh, Welsh fans had their own way, they they wouldn't play England. But they take no greater delight uh, than if they do manage to beat England, of course. But uh, you talk about expectations when Australia broke uh, our thirty-two year drought back in two thousand and five and qualified for the two thousand and six World Cup. It it did springboard that golden generation of Australian footballers, which included the likes of Harry Kuehl, Mark Paduka, Tim Cale, Mark Schwarzer, a number of others, Lucas Neal, um, and uh, and and Australia did get out of the group, had some famous victories which etched into the memories of every football fan, and uh, and only went out to the eventual champions, Italy, in controversial circumstances. So uh, given Wales's uh, excellent performance in the Euros, albeit the, the heavy defeat against Denmark that, that uh, was the exit for them, there's something of a reality check quite quickly, the loss to, to the Netherlands in the first round of the Nations League and uh, and coming up against Belgium this weekend. So so that expectation has to be aligned with uh, with performance on the park as well so that uh, that, that it, excitement and momentum doesn't uh, uh, doesn't drift off and uh, and it builds up towards the World Cup at the end of the year. Yeah, and these kind of Nations League matches, Wales um, playing in the top level of the Nations League for the first time, they're using it as very much as preparation for the World Cup. So um, in that game against the Netherlands, Wales made seven changes, uh, rested Bale, Ramsey, Joe Allen, um, Ethan Ampadu. Um, and Rob Page's thinking is that he needs to use these games against top opposition as a chance to expose his younger and fringe players uh, to the best in the world because that is what will happen at a World Cup, whether it's through injury or from having to rotate his squad for three matches in quick succession in the group stage. Um, he wants to have you know, a pool of 20 or 25 players as opposed to the 
15 or so who who you might be deemed good enough for that level at the moment. So, yeah, every game now will be preparation for the World Cup. And although there might be some bumpy results along the way um, in the Nations League in particular, you think of that Belgium game on Saturday. Wales have a very good record against Belgium, as it happens in recent years. But if there are more changes again, and you take into consideration that Belgium beat Poland 6-1 last night, you do worry if there might be a a few kind of chastening results on the way. But Wales are willing to kind of sacrifice the Nations League. Of course, they want to win um, as many games as they can at that level. But if they do get relegated back down to the second tier of the Nations League, but it meant that some of those younger, less experienced players have the chance to, to test themselves against the best, then it will have been worth it. Well, Dufford, uh, we could talk to you uh, for uh, a lot longer, but um, congratulations from uh, one uh, uh, relative football minnow to another probably bigger <laughs> minnow in in uh, world terms, uh, the first World Cup since 1958. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a tremendous performance. You've got so much to look forward to uh, over the coming months and uh, and the event itself. Uh, uh, we'd love to have you back on to, to have a chat about it and, uh, and discuss Wales' chances uh, as the event uh, comes closer. And, um, yeah, we just... Uh, uh, wish you luck and 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 bathe in the afterglow of uh, of uh, some happy times. Uh, there's enough rough stuff that happens in this life that uh, uh, that when you get the joy of a World Cup uh, qualifying performance, uh, you don't uh, take that lightly. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Look forward to being back. Not at all, Duffield Pritchard from the BBC Wales, uh, joining us to talk about the uh, the qualification of Wales for the first time in 64 years for the Qatar World Cup in November. Okay, that was. Uh, a conversation we'd been looking forward to for some time. We didn't expect it. And to our good mate Dino, who'll be listening out there. Well done to you as well, brother. Okay, stick around. There's plenty more to talk about on Box to Box on Stoppage Time after the break. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. This is stoppage time. We've got plenty of time to uh, expound on a, a few of the uh, the big stories of the week, which we haven't gotten to yet. Uh, wonderful talking to Marcella Mora Iaraho earlier on. Extended chat with Marcella. She's a real poet of football. But uh, just before the break, Duffy Pritchard from the BBC Wales. Uh, what a feeling it is over there right now. Uh, they've qualified for their first World Cup in 64 years. And Derek, uh, uh, you know, you wanted to sort of... Uh, extend that conversation a little with some of the of the elements of of that qualification that we we really didn't flesh out as fully as we would have liked to it's a super interview with daffod and i i'm looking forward to having him back as we follow and get behind wales in in qatar um one of the interesting things that we spoke about in the game uh sorry in in the interview was the two key players for wales bale and ramsey they're the totemic figures in the game obviously much celebrated particularly bale from his time at real madrid of course uh, uh ramsey i have him in my heart as an arsenal fan a serial fa cup final winning goal scorer he has been playing at juventus and then rangers of course where he if infamous me misses the penalty in the Europa League final, but we're going to have a situation soon where neither Bale or Ramsey may not have a club shortly, and they are going to be going into what is probably and arguably for them the biggest six months of their professional careers leading into a World Cup. 
Gareth Bale is apparently being lined up by Cardiff and Bale apparently will make an unbelievable um, sacrifice in salary potentially to make that happen. It could be up to 90% of of the wages, that less of the wages he was on at uh, Real Madrid. And then, of course, yes, Spurs, MLS, and then Ramsey is apparently going to have his contract terminated by Juventus, joined them on a free transfer from Arsenal. And he's going to be a really... Uh, interesting player now because he's got a huge wage aspirations. His agent will be going around trying to get him the best possible deal. But the sorts of clubs that are looking at him, it's not even guaranteed Rangers want him back. Leeds, Derby County, amongst the others. Rob, do you, is this um, how important do you think it is for Bale and Ramsey just to find a club? that they can play out for six months and get some game time in their legs. You'd feel that, that they'd need to continue to play, wouldn't you, to just to keep that sharp edge? I mean, I guess you look at it in the context of Australia's match uh, against the UAE uh, a couple of days ago that uh, probably you know one of our top two or three players, Aaron Moy, um, was one of our least effective because he hasn't been playing. Now, and Aaron Moy uh, at his peak comes into the Socceroos side and he orchestrates everything that goes on around him. So uh, yeah, I, I just think, that no matter what sport it is that you're playing, that uh, you need to continue to hone your skills and keep them at the sharpest of edges. So uh, you're asking me, I think they have to get a club and, and keep playing football at some level. At some level, I think, is the key. I think that the radar has got to be lowered. I think Europe is the place for them too. I'm not sure. I think Gareth Bale can go to MLS until um, Ramsey could go there. But I think a European next six months, even if it's uh, in the lower part of the uh, Premier League or even in the Championship, because, you know, they don't want to be going to this World Cup feeling short. There is a bit of talk over here that, that uh, Gareth Bale could be going to Wrexham, which is the, you know, the Disney project, the club owned by the two, uh, the two Hollywood actors who are looking to take Wrexham from the, you know, almost the non-league right through to the Premier League. So there has been a bit of talk that that, that is... Uh, that is something that uh, Gail is pondering at the moment, which would make a mockery of these preparations for World Cup playing or what, what, whatever they're in. What, what are they in? I think they're in fourth or fifth tier of English football. I'm not sure. Didn't but, uh, even, um, didn't even would make be... it out of Conference League North Edge is the answer. Uh, so you're right, it would make a mockery. And I think Cardiff is realistic because at least Cardiff are in the championship and they're competitive. You'll get plenty of game time and you'll have tough matches. I don't think it needs to be the Premier League. Um, I think Wrexham's a joke, though, to be honest. But yeah, <laughs> the guys have got the money. Um, uh, the other thing, too, is good good proximity in Wrexham to the Liverpool golf courses as well. That could that could play a factor in, in Bale's um, Bale's. Well, he's just sure. proved that he's happy to... He, you know, he's he's been a lot, a lot of his not a lot of his career, but some big portions of his career playing golf and not playing football to protect his lucrative uh, contracts. So who knows what will happen? But there is a bit of talk over here in Doha amongst the people that um, that Bale is considering going to Wrexham. So whether that's true or not, who knows? The flag that he famously had his picture next to Edge read number one Wales, number two golf, number three Madrid. So. Uh, he can scrub the Madrid off now because his uh, half a million a week contract has come to an end. But will it now be uh, Wales, Cardiff, Golf? I don't know. Let's let's see. Um, we mentioned the Nations League before. Uh, we'll talk about England and some stuff there uh, and run through some of the contenders. But 
I think all of us noticed in England's loss to Hungary, a very underpowered performance there from Gareth Southgate's much sort of noted favourites for the tournament. There were 30,000 people in the ground and uh, Hungary were meant to be having a stadium ban for uh, uh, for the racist abuse that England players and others had experienced in Budapest. They're taking advantage of UEFA's Article 73, and Edge, I'm sure you're well across all UEFA's articles and potentially 73, where children up to the age of 14 uh, can be invited to a match for free, provided they are accompanied by an adult. Uh, We heard jeering for the taking of the knee by England players, England national anthem booed and jeered. So, um, and, and look, it should be pointed out that England will take on Italy in similar circumstances. They're meant to be punished for the debacle before the Euro 2020 final at Wembley. They're going to have a good number of uh, kids and adults in the stadium. Talking about making a mockery of the game, Edge, this this takes it to the next level, doesn't it? It sure does. And this is a good example, Derek, of where um, if, if, the, if the governing bodies of football, and particularly the international ones, FIFA, UEFA, AFC, if they buy into social, political issues of standards and culture, which, to be honest, you know, vary across uh, the world in, in, in great capacity. So if they do take a stand on some of those issues, like the, the stadium ban for Hungary in terms of the homophobic abuse, or like the stadium ban for England in relation to all the poor behaviour that was we, we observed uh, around the crowd storming stadiums without tickets and stuff, um, if they're going to make those decisions, they have to stand by those decisions because they look completely hypocritical, spineless. And I think people around the world are sick of just people saying the right thing to excuse poor behaviour. Oh, we'll we'll have a stadium ban in Hungary, but it's not really a stadium ban. You know, so it does make a mockery of it. And uh, and I think I've said before many times, my preference is that the sporting bodies stay out of the politics, leave all the... Uh, issues around social, political change, uh, and society to uh, to governments and uh, political instrumentations rather than sporting bodies. But if you go down that path and you make decisions like that, you've got to stand by them. And obviously, you know you, we're highlighting it uh, in stoppage time tonight because it's hypocritical uh, and it leaves a lot of us uh, just thinking, why on earth? Why on earth do you have the bans in the first place if you're not going to enforce them? They don't want to ban. That's the thing. They want to stand. They they say they want to stand up for what's so great and good about the game, but ultimately, whether it's FIFA or whether it's UEFA, and we'll talk a bit more about those organisations in a second. Um, but they're commercial organisations. At the end of the day, they get paid hundreds of millions of dollars a year from sponsors that expect full stadiums. They've got. Uh, member bodies that expect full stadiums for their own financial viability so the the punishment itself it's it's um it's the right kind of punishment but it's not being administered by the there's there's no incentive in my view for uefa to have stadium banned so that's why 73 article 73 is sitting there as as a as a little loophole to go yeah we can still fill the stadiums coca cola can be happy uh the home nations it, it kind of, the unions can um, you know it's not as a bigger national sort of international scandal because it is really obvious we saw during covid when you empty a stadium it really does change the quality of the product and the atmosphere and everything but uefa don't want to do this i, I think it's very clear to me so uh these are not 
yeah, I, 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 look, I don't blame uh, Hungary and England for doing it because that's where the loophole is there. You know, I don't expect England to say, do you know what, the loophole is there, but we're not going to do it. Uh, you know, they want to play in front of fans. So this is not their problem. It's, uh, it's UEFA's problem, but I don't even know if they're the right people to be doing it. But moving on to... Um, sort of slightly happier stuff or more positive stuff just sort of running through some of what's happened in Nations League this week and there are of course more games to go which the listeners will be aware of but Harry Kane had a 50th goal for England against Germany it wasn't a great performance but England nicked a, a draw there in Germany and they'd probably take that I thought he could have had a hat-trick it was a pretty open game but he's now gone officially clear of Bobby Charlton he's now three goals behind Rooney and, and he will do that this year. I, I can't see how he's not going to score three penalties for England between now and the end of the World Cup. So I think Harry Kane is uh, well on track. England are not necessarily on track, though. I think they've looked pretty underwhelming. A lot of people citing that there's fatigue. Um, I'm looking around the rest of Europe. I don't see a lot of other fatigue, and there's plenty of plenty of matches there too. Uh, Portugal smashing the Swiss 4-0. Uh, Ronaldo, Ronaldo getting two goals there. Um, uh, Brazil, you know, beating South Korea and Japan in their backyards. Belgium had a 6-1 win over Poland overnight, two for Trossard there, another for De Bruyne. Um, France are struggling a bit, so I'd put uh, France in that England category uh, and Spain as well, a couple of draws, including a very entertaining game against the Czechs. And, uh, of course, Willem in the studio will be happy that uh, uh, his Netherlands did beat Wales. We were talking to Dafford before, but uh, Veghorst, who couldn't uh, hit a cow's ass with a banjo, as they say, uh, in the Premier League last uh, time round, getting the winner against Wales. And sadly, um, sadly, Rob, um, Italy looking really good, but of course they're not going to be there. Well, we were talking to Marcella earlier on and she was referring to that finalissima where uh, Argentina uh, uh, pulled uh, Italy's pants down. But since then, they've uh, they've bounced back with some, some great results, sitting on top of their Nations League group with... Uh, uh, with uh, 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 some some great results, uh, Mancini has, uh, has started to blood new players and uh, and and do do now what he realizes he probably should have done about a month ago. And if he had of, they might have been looking forward to the World Cup. Instead, they've got to wait another four years. Edge, just a final one from me. I mentioned UEFA and FIFA before, and I don't know if it's on the lips of people in Qatar, but there is a set one set Blatter and one Michel Platini who are due in court uh, in Switzerland, uh, both facing corruption trials. And it has been delayed by one day because... Uh, Mr. Blatter has apparently is too ill to testify. It does feel a little bit like the player feigning injury on the pitch to buy a little bit more time. Um, what do you? What can we expect from this edge? I know it's that's a hard question uh, without notice, but can we seri- Do we seriously think that Sepp and Michelle Platini will face justice uh, and uh, for what they've done, or do you think that? they've been doing a lot behind the scenes and maybe they can wriggle out of this one. Well, I think the appropriate justice for uh, Sepp Blatter is to bring him to Qatar and stick him, uh, you know, time to a chair next to the countdown clock, uh, which is in a glass dome. Uh, and th- when you go into the glass dome, it's about 65 degrees. So <laughs> Celsius, by the way. Um, so I think that's the appropriate uh, place to ensure that he gets a, a, a front row seat to what's happening in Qatar because, this World Cup is his legacy. Um, 
I've got to say, um, all it will do will um, people will watch obviously because of the the two people, two individuals involved in this. But I mean, as soon as we stop talking about those two guys and get on with the future of the sport, the better. It's not a it's not a great reflection on uh, those two gentlemen, the, the, how they led the sport, and uh, you know we're we're all still dealing with um, the fallout associated with all of that, but. Yes, um, I'm sure those people, there'll be people that uh, get their popcorn and enjoy the evidence and the sort of the twists and spins of how these guys um, are trying to navigate through their problems. But uh, for me, um, you know, I really want to move on to a new era where uh, we don't have uh, the legacy that we've got at the moment, which is a World Cup in a city of two million people that's going to have uh, enormous challenges to deliver the event in a in a way that we would expect uh, the, the best and biggest event of the world to be to be carried off. So bring in to stop his time. Rob, it can't all be uh, fun and games, but that is the world game. No, it can't, but um, but sometimes we need to take uh, a cerebral view on this show. It's, uh, as you say, not all fun and games, and as we found out from Marcelo... Uh, you just, who, you've uh, just was... depressed me, Derek. I've just, <laughs> I'm just sitting here in Doha completely depressed after that. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been so excited with Australia being in the UAE and our leading up the, the Peru game. Are you blokes talking about negative stuff? Come on, give me a break. We've got a massive game against Peru, Rob. I hope you have got green and gold paint on your fence. I hope you're, uh, you're getting uh, Alexander, getting him enough sleep to wake him up at 4 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday. I hope Derek's uh, going to be up listening to the, uh, the Wombats uh, scratch around the front of his house in Hillsville. He's got to change the green and black paint on his fence to, to green and gold. At least you've only got to paint over the black yeah, to, to go gold, yeah. uh, Derek. Uh, no, but it, it is, it, I mean, just as we end uh, the end of a great show, that um, I've got to say that um, the, the excitement here in Qatar around the Intercontinental Club is massive. We're in the Western Hotel with uh, the, the tour group and uh, the Costa Ricans are staying with us and uh, we've got some friends staying down at the height where the, uh, the Peruvians are staying, and uh, look, it, it is—it's um, not a World Cup, but it's a mini sort of World Cup. Um, everybody's talking about these intercontinental games; they're going to be absolutely massive, and you know, such a significant uh, challenge for our Socceroos. But uh, we bumped into uh, James Johnson last night uh, around dinner time in Sukhwakif, and he was, you know, uh, reinforcing the significance of um, winning and uh, what it means for the development of the game to our tour group. So, look, it's. Um, um, it's nervous times, but it's also great times because it's uh, it's better to be involved in uh, this stage of the tournament than uh, like the United Emirates fans and uh, officials who are looking at us with great envy after losing last uh, last week or a few days ago, whenever it was. It's all mission into one, Rob. I'm sure it is, mate. It's uh, well. Look, hopefully, Edge uh, for you and for well that nearly thousand uh, uh, strong group of supporters that you would be taking will be taking. Hopefully, if the soccer is make it that uh, um, that it, this is just uh, as I said to Marcelo earlier on, just a little entree to uh, to what's going to happen in November and December. I know Peru; uh, they want to be there too, but you can't have two spots. We want to be there just as much. So, Edge, uh, you enjoy it, mate. Uh, be there on our behalf. We'll be spotting you as we watch the vision as we. Always seem to find you there on, as Willem calls it, Edge Watch, um, in the stadium somewhere. And, you guys um, were counting. I mean, I was following the uh, the WhatsApp count. Yeah, so uh, yeah, let's yeah, say yeah. what did I get to last week? Fifteen. Yeah, want to uh, want to avoid I that, think... please. Gee, the last the last thing people need to see in Australia is me on the TV. 
<laughs> we'll find you there, mate. Uh, enjoy it, Edge. Uh, we'll be uh, we'll be um, there in spirit, mate. Thanks, Rob. Derek, thank you again. A uh, real treat talking to Dufford there earlier on. Um, and uh, mate, uh, you have a good week. We'll uh, we'll talk to you again next week, my friend. Yeah, thank you. Sorry for depressing everyone. I do, I do try and bring the lights and notes in. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but uh, look, uh, great stuff for the Socceroos. Uh, nearly got my passport, guys, and yeah, obviously I'll be shouting them on, and I'll go out and paint my fence. <laughs> Good on you, and Willem. I think he's still uh, there <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> great work as always, Willem, and um, and to Damien as well. Are you there, Willem? I think you get it. I'm here. For goodness sakes, Edge, get those boys through on Tuesday morning. Yeah, we'll do our best. We'll do our best, Willem. We'll do it all again next week. Hopefully, we'll be celebrating. Please subscribe to Box to Box wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. And join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the World Game.